Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'd like to talk with you tonight about something that you're spending at least half of your time doing here in the retreat, which is walking. But before I get to that, I actually would like to talk to you about what you're spending all of your time on the retreat doing, which is Dharma practice. And give you a little bit of a sense of uh, what it's about. So as you know, this practices that we're doing here are practices that were taught by the Buddha, who is actually a historical person who lived 2,600 years ago in northern India. In fact, also a person of color. And he was a person who uh, came from a fairly well-off family. He had a sort of existential crisis about his life, trying to understand the meaning of it. He went off on his own spiritual search. So he went off into the forests and joined uh, many of the different uh, bands of spiritual practitioners that there were at the time. And at the time in northern India, uh, it was a very rich time for spiritual practice. There were actually many, many people doing different practices, trying to understand the truth, trying to understand the meaning of life and death and time and all kinds of things like this. So I think it's a little bit like what it's like in Northern California now for technology. Uh, But this is spiritual technology. So he basically went and joined one group, you know, sort of one startup group there, and he learned all the practices they had, and he kind of rose to the top there. And the teacher actually told him, like, oh, now you should start teaching. But it wasn't enough for him. He hadn't really answered his question. And then he went to another one, same thing. And finally he kind of went off on his own uh, to try and understand and through uh, practice and uh, the deepening of understanding that actually had been developed over many, many lifetimes, as uh, has been alluded to, uh, he actually managed to penetrate into the deepest understanding about the truth of the way things are, about the Dharma. So was called, he was enlightened. And not only enlightened, but actually an enlightened being who could actually teach this to other people. And teach it in such a way that uh, it actually has been able to be carried out and uh, transcend boundaries of time and culture for 2,600 years. And then it comes to us here today in uh, modern times. So the thing that he's teaching, the Dharma, is really the truth of the way things are. And it's something that is not something he made up or uh, concocted, but it's actually something true about all of our lives, about reality, about existence. And the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of the practices and the teachings themselves about the truth are actually designed to help us to understand this through our own experience. And we actually have everything that we need to understand this in our own body-mind system. So in your five-foot, six-foot frame here, Uh, you have all the equipment that you need to carry out this experiment and to discover this on your own. And some of it are things that you already might know on some level, intellectually. Some of it are things that you might have heard from different people at different times. Sometimes Dharma teachings are things that resonate with you, and you're like, oh, that's just like what my grandma said, or oh, that reminds me of this other spiritual teaching I heard. So this is also true because it's the truth of the way things are. So these are actually universal truths. And as we learn to live more and more in alignment with these, then we actually live a more harmonious and happy life. We suffer less. And when we live not in alignment with these, when we don't have the wisdom to understand, uh, then we suffer more. And it really is as simple as that. It's just living out of harmony with the truth of the way things are. So the example I like to give of this is uh, pointing out another natural law in the physical world, which is the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is something that 
all of us have some sense of, right? So basically, if you uh, place something in midair, like this, if you try to place something in midair, it's going to fall, right? You knew that was going to happen, right? So then you might think, like, oh, well, maybe that was, you know, it just happened there. I'm going to do it this side, right? So same thing happens, right? So you can see that this is just the way things are, and then you slowly learn to live in accordance with this. So, you know, when I tried to place my papers, I didn't try to place them in midair. I put them on this uh, podium-like thing, and there they rest. And you didn't actually know about this when you were born, necessarily. So you see little kids, like, trying to figure this out. So sitting in their high chairs and um, throwing baby food off, and peas and carrots and spoons, right? And then watching the adults fetch them and come back and stuff. But, um, but after a while, you figure it out, more or less. And then you live in accordance with the law of gravity as best you can. And if you ever make a mistake in this area, you know, if I ever uh, try to put this here and it's only halfway and then it falls, I understand why that happened. I don't know, like, who's running that or, you know, anything like that, but it doesn't matter. Like, I understand that. Like, oh, that's why that happened, the law of gravity, right? And it's not personal to me, you know, so I don't need to feel like, like, why me, why now, you know? <laughs> like, it just happens. So anyone did that, it would happen, right? Uh, and so you learn to live in accordance with this as best you can. So similarly, the Dharma, as we get an understanding of the teachings of the Dharma, helps us to live in accordance with the way things are. So we start to understand, for example, uh, the three characteristics, so that uh, everything in our experience is actually impermanent. So everything is change, 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 change. And that's part of what we're seeing when we bring our awareness to our body-mind experience. There's no thought that's remained, there's no emotion that's remained, there's no physical sensation that's remained. No sound, no smell, no touch. Because of this, what we think as solid objects are actually not solid objects. So everything that we identify conceptually as an object, including ourself, is actually, on the deepest level, uh, in terms of experience, just this flow of different experiences. And so there's actually nowhere to stand in that. There's no solidity. So as we're able to let go into that, if we're actually able to relax into that and understand that, then uh, we can be in harmony with that. So we don't expect things that are not solid to last. We know that things change. So then our recipe for happiness, for example, for peace and happiness, is not actually predicated on trying to find experiences that last or trying to find objects that last, because we know that they won't. So any more than we try to capture smoke rings or that we'll try to uh, hold on to sandcastles. You know, we know those are temporary phenomenon, but actually everything is too. So here is something from the, one of the, the teachings of the Buddha. It's one of the main teachings that these practices are from uh, that we are uh, teaching here, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, of liberation, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is actually the practice that we're doing, the direct way, the direct path for the purification, for surmounting sorrow and lamentation, disappearance of pain and grief, and attainment of the true way. And the sutta goes on to explain more about how to specifically do this, uh, much of which we have been actually unfolding in the instructions here, uh, day by day. So about connecting with the body, connecting with the breath, uh, as we'll go on, also connecting with uh, understanding thoughts and mental states and so on. So I want to focus on this one uh, part of it in which you're talking about the four postures So again, when walking, a practitioner understands I am walking. When standing, she understands I'm standing. When sitting, she understands I'm sitting. When lying down, she understands I'm lying down. Or she understands accordingly, however her body is disposed. So the awareness practice extends to all these different postures. 
So you heard us saying, you know, if you're feeling sleepy, you can actually stand up. Actually, just in your place, you can just stand up. And this is actually not some lesser posture to do, uh, standing up. This is actually a completely legitimate uh, form in which to practice awareness, to practice mindfulness. In this way, a practitioner abides contemplating the body as the body, internally, externally, both internally and externally. A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending his limbs, when wearing his robes or clothes and carrying his bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. Yes, that is in here too. (laughs) Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as the body, internally, externally, both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. So you can see in this that basically nothing is left out that happens in your day. So everything is fair game for awareness. So not just the formal sitting and the formal walking, but all the times in between. So getting dressed, uh, going down to the dining hall, going to the bathroom. You didn't put showering in here, but showering could also be in here. So all of this are areas for us to practice awareness. So I say this partly because uh, in introducing uh, the topic of the walking meditation, I feel like walking has kind of gotten a short shrift in meditation circles for a number of reasons. So I feel like it's kind of gotten to be the, the uh, bad reputation as a lesser practice. And walking is actually, for me, one of my main practices and something that I feel is incredibly beneficial Uh, and actually very profound. So I want to share some of that with you today. So the Buddha actually, after his enlightenment, uh, he didn't actually leave where he was for a while. So apparently he he was by this this big tree, the Bo tree, in in, uh, Bodh Gaya. It was then a kind of, uh, not called Bodh Gaya, (laughs) just a little town. And he actually sat there for another week. Then he actually practiced walking meditation for a week. And then he actually stood and stared at the tree in gratitude for another week. And then so on. So he actually spent a bunch of time doing this. So if anyone thinks that you're too good or too enlightened to do walking meditation, you can just keep in mind that the Buddha himself actually did this soon after his enlightenment. And then he actually spent the next 45 years of his life wandering on foot all around India teaching the Dharma. On foot, completely on foot, Now, of course, there were not trains and cars 2,600 years ago, but there were, in fact, ox carts and horses and things like that. He actually prohibited his monks and nuns from riding in those uh, because they would cause harm to the animals. And that's actually still a precept for the uh, monastics, too. So basically, they were hoofing it. They were walking, you know. And he would walk up to 10 miles a day, going from place to place, And as he walked, he would meet different people and talk to them. And this was all sort of part of his life and part of his teaching. Now, a lot of this, I feel like, we've kind of lost touch with in our modern world. And part of it is this sense of speed. You know, there's a sense of speed that's built up uh, around our lives. So I actually decided to take a resolve uh, to walk a lot more in my life. I live in the mission in San Francisco, And I decided if I ever had something that I had to do that was within 20-minute potential walk, uh, I would actually walk there. So instead of taking the bus or Muni or uh, driving or something, I would try to walk there and build in the time to do that. And it's actually been very profound uh, practice for me of knowing my neighborhood and actually of knowing the city itself. And sometimes it's longer than 20 minutes too if I can uh, make enough time for that. And I travel a lot with teaching retreats, and whenever I come home, I feel like I kind of want to walk the neighborhood. You know, it's sort of like just getting to know again the landscape. And moving at that pace is much better pace for noticing things, for connecting with people, uh, for noticing what's changed in the environment, 
for noticing what's going on in the stores and in the houses. So it helps me to feel very much more connected to my community in doing that. I did a a retreat myself in uh, April at IMS, which is a similar center in Massachusetts. And uh, on that retreat, it was um, practicing a technique, a fairly open awareness, and there was a kind of flexible schedule for us. And I spend most of my time walking, actually, walking outside. So I I noticed on our schedule we have um, built in a couple periods of walking each uh, afternoon and morning and evening, um, adding up to maybe about three hours or so, uh, a little more than three hours maybe. And I think I spent probably eight hours walking a day at that time. It was more like sitting was done in between the walking, you know, as a sort of rest from the walking. And I feel like I learned a lot from that. So there's one uh, teacher named Ajahn Moon, uh, who is a, a Thai meditation master who is very into uh, walking practice. And some of you may have seen his uh, description of him in his picture in that gratitude hut that's just past the gate, in which there are pictures of a lot of the teachers in our lineage, this uh, Theravada Buddhist lineage. And really this was something that, that Thai Ajans also did when they visited different monasteries to see how serious the practitioners were, was they wanted to look at the walking path. So they want to look at the walking path to see if they were actually kind of worn down, you know, if people actually have been using them, and if they're swept, you know, if people are taking care of them. So you can't see that as well from the cushions, right? The cushions don't wear down in the same way, right? Or the sitting spots. But the walking paths, you can kind of see that. Right? So Ajahn Mun, here's a, a quote from him that's also um, in that hut down there. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So that's pretty strong, right? In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Just have this loyalty, connection to your body. This connection to your body that so many of us have lost in modern times you know, with use of uh, technology and spending a lot of time in front of screens and leading more and more sedentary lives. Many people have lost a connection to their body. So the practice of walking meditation actually helps us to become embodied people. And it's a very, very profound thing to be an embodied person. So what we're practicing here is this sense of presence, awareness. So awareness in the body, awareness of the mind, awareness of emotions. The body is a significant part of that. So even though it might be the less glamorous part, it's sort of the animal scrabbling, having to be fed and watered and showered and all that stuff, right? Being able to be present in the body is very, very powerful. There's a dignity to being able to be present in your body. And if you can think of people who you respect who you feel like are people who have certain amount of spiritual awareness or uh, who seem like holy people in some way, in whatever tradition it is. And they don't even have to be you know, official priests or teachers. It could be just elders who you know or wise people. There usually is some component of being embodied, of being present, right? being connected, being here, basically. So this walking practice is one of the direct practices of helping us, each of us, all of us, to actually connect to that, to become that, to actually realize that which is our birthright of being these awake, alive people in the world. So there's a story that you know, Ajahn Moon, uh, who was a very fierce practitioner, and if, uh, if you look at his picture, you could see that. He's uh, kind of very, seems very serious and you know, like this. And uh, so he's going practicing walking meditation um, off in the forests of Thailand. And apparently he had gone to some place in which um, there were not people who knew about Buddhist monks. Uh, So he passed through this one village and there were these um, people from one uh, particular hill tribe and they were like, what is this guy up to, you know? 
Um, so they started to follow him. You know, he was doing walking meditation up this hill. So they started to follow him up the hill. And then when he turned around, it's like the whole village was there, you know, looking at him, right? Uh, so, you know, he, he had been doing the walking meditation in the way that we described, sort of keeping his eyes sort of downwards, and he's moving kind of slowly and stuff. And so one of them asked, so, sir, did you lose something, and can we help you find it? You know. And uh, his answer is very sweet. He says, um, I'm looking for Buddha, the Buddha in the heart, and you can help me find it by walking your own paths and by looking for the Buddha yourself. And so then he actually taught them the walking meditation practice, and then they had their own walking paths too. So I've had some experience like this. I teach um, meditation in different settings, and one of the settings I teach is in different organizations. And I was teaching walking practice in one organization, and they had moved us from uh, the usual room that we were in into this other conference room, uh, and this is a tech company, so it was like all glass walls in this conference room, and um, it's like all kind of funky architecture outside, and then they have their copious free snacks in this area and stuff. And um, So we're doing walking meditation, and you know, I was getting everyone to like walk back and forth slowly, eyes downcast, and uh, this little crowd starts to gather you know, outside the glass walls, you know, eating their different snacks, like watching, like, what's going on here, you know? Like... <laughs> Like, what are these people up to, you know? And uh, I, I had tried to keep everyone with their eyes down. I was like, don't look up, keep your eyes down. <laughs> and kind of shooed the people away and stuff. And then, um, and then actually uh, sent them out to do um, guerrilla walking meditation in their office, you know. So, uh, you know, walking at a normal pace, but try to be embodied and walk to the printer. You know, try to be embodied and walk to the bathroom. Uh, walk to the BART, walk to the bank, and come back, and then report on how that went, right? So this practice of walking is actually one of the practices that is the most transferable to your regular life, too. Uh, And here we're doing it under basically sort of lab conditions. So simplest conditions that are possible, right? So in silence, so unlike in an office, right? In a place where everyone else is practicing this, too. So you don't have to worry about people eating chips and watching you, necessarily, right? in a place where that's actually your main job. In fact, your only job is actually to do these practices. The concentration that's developed from walking meditation is also, uh, tends to be a kind of um, collectedness of focus that is um, more resilient. It's it's a very resilient uh, focus that can be applied then to other daily life activities. So the sitting meditation is actually very good and also is developing concentration and awareness and so on. When you do the walking practice, we're actually collecting the energy that usually is very dispersed, but we're doing it in the context of an activity that we normally do in our regular life. And in fact, with some of the same conditions, like you actually have to pay attention to where you're going. There's actually other sounds around. You have to notice like what is happening so that you don't trip and fall and so on. And yet the instruction is actually primarily to tune into your own body. So primarily to tune into the connection to your physical body, your legs, your feet, as you're moving. And just notice very simply what you notice there. It seems so simple. And it is. It's actually very simplified practice. Uh, It's something that even a child could do. And actually children do enjoy doing walking meditation. But it's not necessarily easy. Or it's not easy to do it continuously, right? So there's uh, many different traditions, spiritual traditions, that have some kind of walking practice as part of them. There is one tradition of um, walking the labyrinth. So uh, outside of some uh, some cathedrals, like Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, there's this labyrinth on the ground. And it basically is like this maze tent type thing. And you're supposed to start in one part and just walk, you know, mindfully, follow it around. And it kind of snakes you in and out. And you seem to be getting closer to the middle. And then it takes you back out again. And then go closer to the middle and out again. And then... You know, you follow it all the way around, right? 
So the practice that we're doing is even simpler than that. You could imagine, if you will, that you have a labyrinth, but it's the same path going back and forth. And actually, there is that element of seeming sometimes like you're going closer and farther. And then your practice is actually this devotion, this connection to your body, just coming back again. You're just coming back again, just coming back again, as often as you can notice. Walking is something that we really take for granted most of the time, until we actually can't do it anymore. So I bet there's some other people here who have had some experience like this. Uh, So I had a a really bad uh, accident playing soccer, a bad injury playing soccer about four or five years ago, and um, really busted up my knee. So I tore out ligaments uh, and sprained some things, and the bones bashed together and tore the meniscus, and just big mess in there, very painful mess. And then I was on crutches for a while, uh, and then uh, after that had to have an operation and uh, they tacked in this cadaver ligament and messed around and different things, sewed things up. Uh, and then by that time, actually, the muscles in the leg had really atrophied a lot from misuse, from disuse. And basically I had to learn how to walk again uh, with this leg. So I had to learn both the strength in the leg and also to learn the mechanics of walking. And it's actually not that easy. You know, it's kind of a complicated thing to do, walking. Uh, and you see little kids learning how to walk, and you can see they keep falling down and stuff. But even as an adult, to relearn this actually took a lot of effort, uh, and going to physical therapy and things like that. But it did make me very mindful and appreciative of the ability to walk. I think one of the reasons that walking meditation gets a uh, bad rap is also that mostly you see these statues of the Buddha and you see the Buddha sitting in this posture. So then people think like, oh, that's the serious meditation posture, isn't it? Like sitting, and then especially sitting in the lotus, like that's what the cool people do, you know. (laughs) You'd be much faster towards enlightenment if you can do that, right? Uh, In fact, I, I know a lot of people have been struggling with posture and kind of struggling with like, oh, you know, I sometimes have to sit in a chair and then they feel like it's like this great defeat to have to sit in a chair and, you know. And I say don't worry about it, you know. Uh, You know, the practice is not actually mainly focused on the flexibility of your hips and knees. So, uh, you know, if it was, basically the teaching team here would be like the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, right? And they would all be enlightened and uh, that would be the main thing. Uh, but it really doesn't matter. You know, it's actually a practice of understanding the mind, understanding your relationship to the body. So it doesn't matter what posture your body is in. So sit in a chair, you know, allow that to be the case. Uh, I happened upon an a exhibit in uh, SFO in San Francisco airport that was actually of um, walking Buddha statues. So there is actually some tradition in, I think, Thailand, the 13th, 14th century of these Uh, statues of the walking Buddha. And he has his hand up like this, and he's kind of in mid-step like that. Uh, So I feel like we should get one of those for out here too, just to uh, support walking meditation as a serious practice. So also I think a, a critical thing about walking, and a very important thing about it, is actually being able to connect your body to the earth. And I think that's one reason why I like to do the walking meditation outside. But of course, even if you do it inside, you're connected to the ground. And you're connected to the ground in motion. And there's the element of kind of slowing down that's part of it. Uh, It actually is very humbling to walk, you know. Like as humans, we're used to, you know, getting in cars and getting in planes and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, that in some way seems to make us better than all the other animals. But like walking, it's all equal, you know. Like we're not the fastest walkers, you know. Like we can't cover as much territory as some can. And when you move slower, you can also notice more. So you notice more in connection with your body. You notice more in the environment too. So we kind of take our place in nature. And I feel like realizing oneself as part of nature is a really important and big part of this practice. So just connecting to this true fact that we are also part of nature.
I want to tell you a story about a man uh, who, a very interesting guy, uh, who actually lives in Marin named John Francis. So John Francis was, uh, is a man actually who still is alive around here, uh, from a family of West Indian origin. And he lived in the Bay Area during the time, some of you might remember, there was a big oil spill in 1971. Uh, I, I wasn't living here then, so I don't remember that, and also was too young. But uh, there was this big oil spill, and he was a young man, maybe 25, 26 years old, and it really affected him badly. So there was a lot of devastation, and he, he kind of joked with his friends, you know, we should all just stop riding in cars. Like, look what this does to the planet. It's terrible. But it was kind of a joke, but then someone he knew died, and suddenly he had this sense of urgency about his life, and he realized, like, oh, you know, you never know how long you're going to live. He's like, maybe I should actually do that thing that I said. Like, maybe I should actually stop riding in cars. So he decided to do it. So he took this vow that he wasn't going to ride in cars, and he basically started uh, walking everywhere. So, you know, in San Francisco, it's not so unusual to see people walking. In Marin, it is, you know, mostly this cars around here and stuff. And, but he just walked everywhere, and people would ask him, like, well, what are you up to? What are you doing? And he would explain this to them. And uh, apparently he would get into fights with people a lot about this. So he maybe wasn't as skillful as conveying his environmental hopes and dreams to people, so he'd get into little tussles. And so then he decided, uh, soon after that, that he was going to try for one day uh, just being silent. So he said, you know, I I realized that uh, I was just getting into arguments with people, and most of my adult life I've not been listening fully. I basically only listened long enough to determine whether the speaker agreed with me, And if they didn't, I would stop listening and I would make up arguments against them. So when I realized that I hadn't been listening, it was as if I had locked away half of my life. I just hadn't been living half of my life. So I decided to take this vow of silence. And silence is not just not talking. It's actually a void. It's a place from which all things come. All voices, all creation comes out of this silence. When you're standing on the edge of silence, you hear things you've never heard before, and you hear things in ways you've never heard them before. And I found that what I would disagree with at one time, I might agree with now, but in another way, with another understanding. So he took this vow on his 27th birthday, and he did it with the idea that he was going to just do it for a day. And then he actually really liked it, so he extended it another day, and another day, and another day. And he actually maintained his vow of silence for 17 years. So during this time, he was actually going around on foot, and he was still actually in different ways conveying uh, to people about why, so he wrote things uh, about why. Amazingly, he also um, went around uh, to different places, he actually earned degrees. He got some college degree, and then he got a PhD, and then... um, He started working for the Coast Guard, uh, helping to write regulations around oil spills. Uh, And then he became this uh, UN ambassador around the environment. Uh, So amazing things this guy did. And all this time he was also walking. So he says about walking too, part of the mystery of walking is that the destination is inside of us and we don't really know where we arrive until we arrive. And he talks about all of these profound experiences he had with other human beings because he was walking. You know, it actually puts you at this very human level with others. And he was moving much slower, he had much more time. Yeah, very powerful. So many people also do this in different ways uh, in religious pilgrimage. So every different religious tradition has pilgrimage sites. And most of them have some dimension that has to do with walking. So some of them you probably have heard of, some of you might have actually gone to them. So for example, the uh, Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James in Spain. So this is a a pilgrimage path that Christians undertake to the place where St. James is supposed to have been buried. And it takes um, many weeks, I think, to get there. And uh, you can stop in different inns along the way and Um, Part of the journey is also the connection to other pilgrims and the walking. 
In the Hindu tradition, there's many pilgrimages like this, for example, to the source of the Ganges River, Gangotri. Uh, Of course, there's a big pilgrimage in the Muslim tradition, in Islam, going to Mecca and circumambulating the Kaaba. And then there are also pilgrimages in the Buddhist tradition. So one of the most meaningful trips that I've taken uh, was actually a pilgrimage that I did with some uh, family members in Sri Lanka, where my family is originally from, uh, up this mountain, which is called Sripada. And Sripada is an unusual pilgrimage site in that it's uh, revered by all of the different major religions in Sri Lanka. So at the top is supposed to be a footprint. That is the footprint, depending on who you talk to, of uh, the Buddha, or Adam, or St. Thomas, before he ascended into heaven, uh, or uh, Vishnu, I believe it is. So something for everyone in the footprint there. And in this pilgrimage, you uh, climb this mountain actually at nighttime, so that you arrive at the top uh, at daybreak, at dawn, so when the sun is rising. And then there's this uh, amazing phenomenon where the uh, Actually, the mountain is very high and it casts a shadow. The sun rising casts a shadow of the mountain onto the clouds below. And when you get to the top, there's a very small uh, area. It's about 1,600 square feet. Uh, and all the pilgrims are kind of gathered up there. Uh, and they have a, uh, some puja, some like services there, chanting and, and stuff like that. So I undertook this pilgrimage with uh, many members of my family. So ranging in age from about... Uh, 14 to 60, and have a very large extended family. So a bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles, and uh, it's really one of the most memorable things I've done. So one of my friends told me that she thought it was because uh, it combined uh, many elements of things that I really like, like um, team sports and hiking and spirituality, uh, all into one, uh, which is probably true. Uh, but like any journey like that, you know, there was this element of us having to rely on each other. Uh, you're walking at night and there are lights, but you have to be very present. You have to be very present in your body. Uh, and the environment is one of actually uh, all these pilgrims going up. So uh, some element of the sacredness of this mountain to all these different people. And along the way, different people fell back and a couple of people, basically the youngest and the oldest, decided they couldn't make it to the top in our party uh, and went back down. Uh, and some of the, the other younger members, some of my teenage boy cousins, like, ran ahead, but then they kind of got tired out. <laughs> and then, you know, we all caught up to them, and then uh, we ended up moving up together. Uh, and it was just a very beautiful experience of walking together, uh, both in solitude but also in community together. So a, a modern... Uh, pilgrimage that I love is uh, Gay Pride in uh, San Francisco. So I just missed Gay Pride in San Francisco, uh, unfortunately, because I was at a wedding for the second year in a row, which I was very sad about. Uh, and I was wondering, like, well, why, why am I so into this? You know, why do I like this so much? Because um, I've actually been out for over 20 years, and many of my friends who have been out that long seem very blasé about it, you know. So I, I ask them what they're doing on Pride, and they're like, oh, I think, is it Pride? I'm going to look at mulch at the Home Depot, or, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, how can you, you know. <sighs> you know. So, uh, but I love it, and I think partly it's my connection to community, you know, to uh, connected to a South Asian queer community, to an Asian queer community in um, San Francisco, and... Uh, when I've walked in Pride, it's, it's actually such a powerful thing, too. Uh, so I've worked on Market Street uh, when I had my regular day job before um, quitting to be an itinerant Dharma teacher slash consultant type. Um, I had a regular job, and I worked on Market Street. And so every day for eight years, you know, pretty much, I turned up, you know, emerged from Montgomery Street up the escalator and walked to work. And uh, I tell you, nobody cheered every time I came out of the escalator, you know? <laughs> So in Pride, it's different, you know, it's like this way of sort of reclaiming the space and uh, with this known identity, you know, uh, and with community. And uh, yeah, I just love it. I think it's beautiful. The rainbow flags, the procession, you know, there's something very meaningful about that um, for me, about community, uh, being able to move through space, sort of walking together like that and being celebrated.
So it is some kind of modern pilgrimage. So walking is so powerful. You know, there's so many other examples. Uh, the uh, civil rights marches that have happened, uh, which were actually modeled after uh, Gandhi's work in India, the Salt March uh, that Gandhi led during Indian independence. The marches of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. So this is um, mothers who in Argentina who are uh, trying to bear witness and fight for the right to reunite with children that were seized during the war by the government. So walking is powerful. Don't underestimate the power of walking. It's powerful in the world, creating social change, and it's powerful in our lives. So I encourage you to practice this while you're here. Take the opportunity on retreat to slow down. And take the opportunity to connect with your body. You know, while you actually don't have to worry about so many other things. Allow yourself to connect with the earth, connect with nature. There's so much to learn from the walking practice. So, you know, we walk back and forth, and when you get to the end of your walking path, there's this moment of transition, of turning around. Notice how your attention is in that transition. It could be something to be learned about how your attention is at different times of transition in your life. Can you stay steady? Can you remain composed? You can notice the impermanence. Notice how the changing sensations are, how they just flow. You can do the walking at different speeds, slower, faster, whatever speed actually helps you to be mindful. Sometimes people will do the walking meditation and do this light mental noting, you know, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Or if you're doing it faster, stepping, stepping, stepping. Or if you're doing it slower, you could actually notice nine parts to each step or 12 parts to each step. And actually, each step can be broken down into millions of parts. You don't need to strain to find the millions of parts. But just allow yourself to slow down just a little bit more. Notice when there's a feeling of rushing. Notice when there's a sense of rushing to the end of the path. Feel that in your body. Feel what that feels like. That leaning out of the moment. We do that so much in our lives in conversations with people, in relationships, in all different moments. So notice that and see if you can come back to center. See if you can practice coming back to center under these kind of laboratory conditions. Some of us, uh, the the teachers were sharing about some stories of uh, experiences we've had of actually being challenged by someone Uh, physically challenged by someone. And uh, at times when we've been able to meet that with this kind of presence, even if that person is much larger and more violent and scarier, etc., that sometimes this force of just the stable presence of body and mind is enough to protect us and actually to still that, to calm that person, or to have them uh, choose not to attack. Now, sometimes it's also good to mindfully run away, so I'm not telling you to always do that. Uh, but there is something very powerful about uh, having, having that presence, being able to manifest that, that presence when you need to. And so how can you do that under those circumstances? How do you do that under these tough circumstances when there's pressure and uh, stress and fear? So practice now. You know, this is practice time. Practice under easier circumstances. Develop that muscle, develop that training. It is, in fact, a discipline, you know, this walking practice. It's a discipline. Uh, it's a training. I remember the first time that I did uh, a long retreat, uh, I came to this practice fairly early um, when I was sort of a teenager and then 
I did a 10-day retreat, and then right after I finished college, I jumped into doing a three-month retreat, three-month silent meditation retreat. And I got there, and the schedule looked much like that, minus yoga, so basically just sitting and walking. And I kind of looked at that, and I was like, wow, for three months, really, that's it? You know, What did I sign up for? And somehow I just realized the only way for me to get through that was uh, to surrender to the schedule. So basically for the next three months, you know, when the bell rang, I sat. When the bell rang, I walked. When the bell rang, I sat. When the bell rang, I walked. You know. So it actually simplified things a lot. You know. uh, and you can see also in the walking practice, you get to see a lot of the monkey mind emerging. You know, the monkey mind being like, oh, what about a cup of tea? Or, oh, maybe I should go rearrange my socks. Or, you know, <laughs> all this stuff, right? So it's a good time to watch that monkey mind, right? And take it with a grain of salt and just, you know, adhere to the discipline, right? And there's a lot to be learned from adhering to discipline. So even the sitting practice, you know, it's actually like a lot of courage. Whenever we sit, we come to the hall to sit, it's like saying, you know what? Here I am, I'm going to sit for this period of time. And let me be here with whatever it is that arises, in the body, in the mind. Let me do my best to be steady with that. Sit like a mountain. Do your best to do that. And there's so much to learn from that. Usually our tendency is to push away, to run, to look for something more interesting, you know, distract ourselves, right? Here we're totally simplifying things and then seeing, like, is that possible? What's there to be learned? What have I actually stopped? So a couple of the elements that help in this, uh, one is curiosity, curiosity and interest. So just bring a sense of interest to your walking practice. So observe the monkey mind that comes up with things like, oh, I already know this, or, you know, like, oh, I know how to walk. I'm not going to learn anything new. This is so boring. I should do something more complicated like Tai Chi or, you know, uh, because walking is so simple. So notice the mind that says, uh, oh, I I know everything already. I know all about this. I know what's going to happen. I know what this is like. So that mind, that kind of uh, arrogant, blind mind, is the enemy of insight. So it's the enemy of wisdom. And that closes us off from actually being able to be there with people, with experience. So we want to bring this quality of openness and actually of love, of caring, to our experience. If you can, with as much sincerity as you can, to just meeting every moment, you know, every breath, try to care about it, try to connect with that. With every step, you know, try to actually just be there and allow yourself to be open. Like, what if I don't know what it's actually like? Maybe it's different. So just resting in that not knowing. It's a lot more fun, and it actually is the truth of how things are. Because just as everything is disappearing all the time, everything is also appearing. New, 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 new. So some of you may have heard this um, quote, we make the road by walking. So this is a, a common quote in many liberation theology circles, and also the title of a book um, of this dialogue between Paulo Freire and uh, Miles Horton from the Highlander Center. And I looked up where that is from, and it's actually a transition from a poem by Antonio Machada, a Spanish poet. Wanderer, your footsteps are the road and nothing more. Wanderer, there is no road. The road is made by walking. By walking, one makes the road, And upon glancing behind, one sees that the path that will never be trod again. Wanderer, there is no road. Al andar se hace el camino, se hace el camino al andar. So this is the truth of our lives too. You know, you make the road by walking. All of our lives are unfolding in these unique ways when you consider the journey of your life. There are many things you could not have predicted probably including being here today. So it keeps unfolding, and we make this road by walking. So why not practice being present as best we can 
Why not learn to be there in this unfolding? So I offer you these thoughts with encouragement to enjoy your walking meditation practice, to get interested in it, and even if you don't enjoy it, to do it. So I think another common um, thing that we fall into in life as well as uh, in practice is often considering that uh, the good meditations are the ones that are pleasant and the bad meditations are the ones that are kind of neutral or unpleasant. The truth is that what we're doing is cultivating this awareness in all of the postures as much as we can, whether or not it's pleasant or unpleasant. So my encouragement to you is to commit to doing the walking practice and just see what happens, both here on retreat in your commitment to doing it here, as well as then you can see when you go home how that helps you in your sense of embodiment walking around, you know, how that helps you in connecting the practice and in taking the practice back home. So this is a great opportunity here on retreat uh, to try this, to do this. And it's rare that all the conditions have come together for this. So thank you for your attention this evening. So we'll sit together for a minute quietly and then it will be time for a walking. Wanderer, your footsteps are the road and nothing more. Wanderer, there is no road. The road is made by walking. By walking, one makes the road. And upon glancing behind, one sees the path that never will be trod again. Wanderer, there is no road. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.